brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Samira Ahmed and in a special episode, I'm talking to Greta Thunberg at the South Bank Centre as part of the London Literature Festival for the global launch of The Climate Book. It's an essential handbook created and edited by Greta, bringing together the wisdom of more than 100 experts, geophysicists, oceanographers and meteorologists, engineers, economists and mathematicians, historians, philosophers and indigenous leaders discussing the challenges that face us, but also a source of optimism aiming to equip us all with the knowledge we need to combat climate disaster. Greta also shares her own stories of demonstrating and uncovering greenwashing around the world, revealing how much we have been kept in the dark. It's a book, I should say, also full of the most beautiful, absorbing photographs. I can't wait to hear what she has to say, so lean in and listen to this special edition of the Penguin Podcast. Greta, thank you so much. Um, You were referring to so many of the world crises that have been happening, but I was thinking as well, you've made your speech on a weekend when news bulletins have finally been leading on climate change as a story again ahead of COP27. So there's been the UN report warning that not enough has been done to avoid 1.5 degrees C warming. And we're going to talk about some of those themes that you cover very much in the book, the failures of the news media, and the failures of government, and the main companies, the corporations, who could have acted when action would have been easier. And I think really importantly, the issue of hope versus doom. And I'm also going to ask some of the many questions that people have posted via the Penguin Readers Hub and the South Bank Centre. But first, I wanted to say, I got to see a draft of your speech that you were working on. um, And I thought, this is a bit like checking one of my daughter's essays. (laughs) Um, And it was the most beautifully written and carefully researched and expertly informed essays I've ever read in my life, that speech you gave. And here you are on the stage of the Royal Festival Hall, still a teenager. So can I take a moment to say, you are the coolest 19-year-old I have ever met. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I had to say that. Now, the book is absolutely full of stories by friends, and we saw some of them in one of the films before, friends who are activists, and you've met them over the last few years since becoming a campaigner. Can I ask how your life has changed because of these friends? Well, I mean, they're not only friends, they're also role models. Um, And I also have many friends in the audience here tonight, so I would like to say hi to you. (laughs) Um, But yeah... I think the others in the climate movement, it really is what keeps you going. Because, I mean, we are, we are speeding in the wrong direction right now. And if, if we didn't have each other, I don't know what we would have done. So in that way, the climate movement has allowed us to, to meet other people who think like we do and who are fighting for the same causes, which is really invaluable. But also, and you, you write about this in your book with great honesty, um, that, you know, four years ago, you, you, know, you were shy, you had 
selective mutism, the What Got You campaigning, it was quite an isolated thing. And you have this whole group of people who become your friends through that campaigning. That's yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, do it. I at least me and for so many others today, we just completely lack a sense of purpose. Um, we are just running around in this hamster wheel, not really getting anywhere. So having something to fight for, having a common cause with others that you love, is is. Um, is invaluable. Um, yeah. yeah, and just wanted to take a moment to stay, take stock of, you know, how your life has changed. You know, you've you've played Glastonbury in a sense. You know, you you have this huge profile on the world stage. But home is still home. It's Sweden. You you're at university now. Can I ask a little bit about you know what day to day life is like for for you? Well, I I still go to high school, so let's. Mm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, the biggest part of my I mean the time I'm not there um, I, I'm just organising campaigning and yeah. do they give you excuses like you, you don't have to get your homework in on time every time if you're I mean, I addressing think, the UN you know? I think if I would if I would ask they would but I have never done so because <laughs> Oh, can I just say, if you'd I like really another like mother or an auntie, I am volunteering now. You are like <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Um, the, the book itself, and I, I cannot speak highly enough of what a joy it was in a way, reading it from cover to cover. This huge range of essays, you know, and you, your voice comes through in between them with your own thoughts. It's full of beautiful and sometimes disturbing photographs and graphs. You know, there are images like the the husky dogs pulling a sledge through melted water um, in the Arctic. And I was thinking reading this, there is something powerful and in a way quite calming about confronting the facts, the truth. There's something you talk mm. about, we have to yeah. face up to the truth. How do you want people to read this book and use it? Um, I mean, I, I started this as a kind of... It was a pandemic project um, because you couldn't really go out yeah. and do stuff as much so then I thought this is the perfect time to actually do something to go more in depth because we often say like on the go we need a system change um, and this system right now is not is not sustainable and so on but now there's actually the basically unlimited space to to really write about and gather other voices to explain why we are saying these things and why these problems are interconnected and why we need to have a holistic approach to them. Um, and also often so many people have come up to me and ask like, I want to learn more about the climate crisis, I want to get involved but I don't know where to start, do you have any like tips for me, things to read? And, and then I, I can like sometimes write a long list of books like, this book covers that, this book talks about that, and, and so on. But there was never something that you could say, like, this covers quite a lot. Um, so I wanted to kind of create that, because it's really a maze trying to navigate um, around all the information that is out there. And it was really, really difficult, um, especially a few years ago. It might be easier now, but it's still... Because you don't know where to start. And so, so much information is just cherry-picked and so this is like I wanted to be something educational um, which is a bit ironic since 
my thing is school strikes. But I do think that's, that's I do think I do think that educating ourselves when it comes to the climate crisis is one of the absolutely most powerful things mm. uh, we can do. Uh, because I believe that once we fully understand the climate emergency and the consequences of it, then we will know what to do and we will know what not to do. And then from there we can move on taking action. So for me, it's not only supposed to be uh, something that provides you with lots of information and data, but also a call to action. Um, because, yeah, as you said, it's some parts can be quite heavy. Um, the climate crisis is not really something that you can like on Facebook. So some things you, you just have to get through um, because I think it is our duty to at least try to understand the things that are happening now, uh, try to understand um, how other people in other parts of the world are suffering um, because we can only solve the climate crisis, we can only actually move on if we understand what we are facing. And that is hope to me. Yeah. You were saying just now that climate action isn't something you can like on Facebook. And you write really well in the book, and others do too, about this idea that's emerged that somehow you can offset damage mm. and you can continue a certain lifestyle if you plant a few trees. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize, but I think you say BP was the company that um, first came up with the idea of a, of a personal global, a personal carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So it's somehow an individual's responsibility mm -hmm. rather than a problem yeah. that's solved by corporations and by governments. Yeah. You're very concerned, aren't you, about that myth that we can somehow make little changes? Yeah. Um I mean, I wish that it would be that it would have been enough with not having to make any major changes, but we have left it too late for that, so the changes that we need right now are going to have to be very drastic, and that's also i mean because the the climate crisis cannot of course not only be solved by individuals alone, we need both individual action and structural systemic um, changes. Uh, of course, the systemic changes are the ones that are the most important because we can try to recycle as much as we want. We can try to, I don't know, become vegetarian or vegan. And that, that's great, but like that won't really change things. Um, if we do it as consumers, um, individual action is, is great and it is very needed because we can't have systemic action without individual action, but then we do it as citizens and we do it as activists um, to put pressure on, on the ones in power. We all have a responsibility. Um, some people have a very, very big responsibility. Some people have a bit less responsibility, but sometimes your responsibility is to simply hold the people in power accountable. Yeah, I know the book is very strong on that, that balance between the individual citizen and the need to use democratic tools to force much larger scale action. Um, one thing I, I, I just think, finally meeting you and thinking what you've achieved in just four years is, you know, you write in the book about how when you first sat down outside the Swedish parliament in August 2018, all I had to offer were facts and moral imperatives or, or guilt, if you like. And a lot of people, including Amanda Wilkinson um, and Sophie, two people who submitted questions, ask, what gave you the courage 
to start the movement all those years ago? Well, <laughs> I did not really think that, oh, now I'm going to start a movement. Uh, it's uh, one thing led to another, which led to another, and, and then it was like a whole range of, it was a snowball effect. And yeah, I started at home um, turning off the lights when we weren't in the room, uh, which annoyed my parents. But then from there, I sort of, I became vegan and I stopped flying and so on. And then I, and then they also started to change their lifestyles because they realized that it made me happy. So, because, yeah, they care, they cared more about me than than their their old habits. Mm. Um, so, and from there, I don't think if I wouldn't have done that, I don't think I would have the 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 conviction to like I can actually do something. Um, so then I I try to. I tried to get organized in different movements, organizations, and, and so on, to donate to, to these funds and, and for, to help good causes and so on. But it didn't really change anything. And I, I didn't fit in these very social environments um, because I was too shy and I was too autistic. So then I was like, okay, then, then I, if, I, if I fail to be a normal teenager and do the things that everyone else do, then I will just do my own thing. Um, and then I just did. Uh, and then it turned out much better than I had expected. I, I was <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like um, yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone actually believed that I would do it because I I told my parents because they were the only people I spoke to <laughs> and they and they were like yeah sure <laughs> because obviously they did not think I was going to go through with it and I don't think they even did on like the morning of the strike itself um I think they they thought I was and then when the, came up when they realized that I was actually leaving um, they were like okay but then they thought I was going to be back like within an hour or so but then I was like I actually enjoy being here I enjoyed sitting here and just being very very annoying to people because uh, I could see that I mean the, either everyone just ignored me or they looked at me and was like oh my god stop um, and I just very much enjoyed that <laughs> I, th I think we all love the public acknowledgement that you quite enjoyed annoying people. Um, <laughs> that is brilliant. And you still have a drawer full of the leaflets that you took with you to give out. Yes, it's at my parents' place. Why, what, what was in the leaflets? I mean, it, the, the, um, although it might not seem like it, uh, the school strike did not start really as a protest. It was more like I wanted to to educate people, giving them facts. I, so I had, because, oh my, I was such a nerd. So I, I, I wrote down all these facts that I thought this, these are the things people need to know. Um, and then I had like a paper full of two small texts because I wanted to fit everything. And then I, I, I put them um, and then a pebble on top and then people could take them. Not many people took them in the beginning, but, but then it was like, it seemed like the 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 small girl in in braids with with um with a sign was more effective 
on bringing people's attention than the leaflets. So then I stopped with them, <laughs> which was sad. <laughs> Um, you say in the book that, quotes, a bunch of weird school kids were able to get millions of people to start changing their lives. Mm. Um, and Saren Gray, who's nine, asks, how did you feel when you saw so many kids, myself included, they say, join the school strike for climate following your protest? Uh, I... It's, it's not really possible to describe. Um, in the, it, of course, it happened very gradually. Um, but then I think it's, I mean, one, one of the most powerful things is just sitting, sitting down and looking at a phone and scrolling through your social media feeds and everywhere is just like, here, here are people striking in Sri Lanka and here is Indonesia and here is um, Namibia and here is Colombia and, and you, you just see these thousands of people everywhere. It was undescribable and I think we were like, what have we done? <laughs> we were um, we were some people who, who just kept repeating it to ourselves, like, what have we started? Did people like put pressure on your parents? Did they ring them up and try and get you to stop? I mean, they tried everything, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like what? Yeah. <laughs> No, no chance. No. Um, in, in the book, you, you quote some of the world figures you met and some of mm -hmm. the annoying, yeah. strange things they said that they don't want to hear facts. Mm. Um, do you fancy naming any names? I don't think so. <laughs> but, but these are like the most powerful people in the world or were. Um, in some cases. <laughs> it's like, imagine you're a teenager and you're spending like all your free time trying to advocate for change and with your activist friends organizing and doing these strikes and then you, you're being told like, it's fine, they have it under control, like we need to listen to them give them a chance and, and so on. And then you meet them and they say like, well, if we really would have known what, what the Paris Agreement really meant, we would not have signed it. Mm. Um, and things like that, it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. Oh. What do you say they, when they say things like that to you? I, yeah, what do you say? Um, <laughs> it's, it's like, these people are, are the ones we, we think have the situation under control. These are the ones who, I mean, our future more or less rests in their hands um, and they are just completely ignoring the problem or even trying to distract from the problem or deny the problem uh, completely. And it's being young today, it's like, it's, it's a betrayal because these are the ones that have the power. Um, and I, I know that we are many, many who feel the same way. Mm. Um, so it just gives you m more motivation that we need to, we need to really change things. Mm. Well, as you gave in...
as, as you gave in your speech as well, there is some beautiful writing in the book. Um, no more, I say, stand your ground. Our so-called leaders still think they can bargain with physics and negotiate with the laws of nature. They read stock market analysis to the waves of the ocean like fools. I, I know our so-called leaders probably don't like a young person speaking to them this way, maybe mm -hmm. especially a young woman. I wonder mm -hmm. what you notice when you meet these people. How do they, it must be nervous meeting you. I hope not. Um, oh, I think they are. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny that, that so powerful people, like the most powerful people in the world, the richest, most influential people in the world, get intimidated by teenagers. Uh, I mean, it's, it's so absurd. Um, uh, but but they, they often do. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't spend their time try to, to mock us and spread hate and conspiracy theories about us. I mean, they must do that because they feel threatened and that is because we, we, are, we are having an impact. Yeah. Um, even though it's, it's too slow, um, it's still a very significant impact. Um, and of course, many, many people think that we are speaking directly to them when, when we say things like, how dare you and, and so on. And, and I, I think that says more about them than it does about us, that they take that personally, that they think, think so highly of themselves when we are speaking to world leaders. Um, but, but yeah, it's... I don't think they like having so many young people, um, like, for example, young women, speaking to them that way. Yeah. Most people don't like being lectured, even, even though when it's about your facts mm. yeah no well I should say also you know you have a real sense of humor about how you handle this and you know we've not named anyone but I'm going to name someone right now Donald Trump and his family <laughs> seem to have you know a real problem with um with you know your um your activism and you seem to just wear it very lightly but I imagine a lot of people would be concerned about the hatred that yeah. gets stirred up on social media? Not really. I mean, they, I find that family quite useful. They, they, uh, they no, but like, no. I, I didn't mean it like that. I meant like for, for, for personal gains because they, they share memes about me that I use and take credit for mm. to my friends. Um, so I just find it very funny. Yeah, no, no, you, 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 you use it brilliantly. Okay, here's a good question. Carlos Cafaro asks, have you, in these years, met at least one politician who genuinely showed an interest in the climate crisis and has taken some actions even on an individual level? And if so, how did you approach them? I mean, of course, there are many, many individuals who are politicians who, who are trying. Um, and we, we should not, of course, we cannot say that all the politicians are liars and they don't care about this. Um, but I do think that if, if I was a politician, um, I think that the thing I would do um, is to, to, to leave the table and say that this is not working and I am not going to be a part of it. I think that that would have a bigger impact than thinking that I will be the exception. I can change things from the inside when, when almost everyone else has failed um, in doing so. Because what we need now is not 
I mean, the time for small steps in the right direction is gone. What we need now is drastic changes, and that will only happen if we have massive pressure from the outside. And that is not going to happen if we only have politicians who say that, well, I have done this and I have done that. It, it, we need politicians who tell it like it is, who say, this is completely wrong. It is not moving any way near where, where we need to be. Um, and so I, I resign. Um, of course, there are, there are some who, who are more or less aware, but it's, it, it's difficult to say when, when I would have done so differently in their position. Yeah. No, thank you. Um, it struck me that there is quite a visible alliance now between some of the very young activists who've been motivated to join the climate action protests and some of the over 60s, and we see it in some of the street protests, mm. What have you noticed about that alliance across generations? It's, um, it's a very, very heartwarming alliance. Um, and it, it really shows that we are united in this, in this, in this cause. Um, because young people often have to take the fight um, more or less alone. Because since there are so painfully few who actually are taking their responsibility to change things and to do something about it. There are so painfully few who do that, even though so many have the opportunity. And then it's, it's often young people who say that, well, this is, this is an actual crisis. And it's always been young, young people who have been leading the change and who have wanted to change our societies for the better. Um, but now it's, it's uh, more and more people um, all the people are starting to, to realize this and taking up a bit of the burden and that is um, extremely invaluable because we need everyone in order to change everything. Uh, we need everyone. We need billions of climate activists and so everyone is welcome. Everyone is needed. Um, it's really interesting what you just said about needing everyone because one of the big debates right now is what sort of activism is working. And you write in the book about the responsibility and the risk of activism sparking social unrest and vandalism. And right now, certainly in the UK, there are people who think the methods of some groups like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion, you know, pouring paint and soup over paintings, blocking roads. Um, one former organizer for XR has said these tactics are not working. Um, and in fact, Alison Bean has asked, is there a right way to campaign for action? Is it possible to do it without upsetting some people? Does it matter if we upset people? I mean, it's, it's difficult to talk about these issues because they are such a broad variety of, of different actions. Um, so I can't really generalize. Um, but, but I mean, overall, I mean, we are right now in a very desperate position for many people are becoming desperate and are trying to find new methods because we realize that what we have been doing up until now has not done the trick. Um, so we, it's only reasonable to expect these kinds of, of different actions and trying out different methods to... Yeah, to, to, to take place, but I, I mean, 
upsetting anyone. There's um, also depends on how you define upsetting mm -hmm. anyone. Um, harming people is one thing, and mm -hmm. making someone annoyed is a different thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that if if countries no if if groups in countries like the UK or Sweden get the media attention, I think it's it's very important to to focus on on the crisis that is happening in many parts of the world in the most affected areas and and shining a light on on the people who are doing this on the front lines yeah. no that's really thoughtful thank you um, a big part of the criticism in the book is about the way the, the media particularly the news media behaves that they're still reporting climate emergencies such as wildfires and flooding as if they are isolated, as if they are occasional events in normal news, um, as if there isn't a ticking clock. And um, there's a Swedish reporter we saw in that film who writes a great essay about how she has changed. Can I ask how often you have had the chance to talk to editors, to media leaders about this and what they say to you? Uh, yeah, it, it really depends. Um, I know that there are many journalists who who want to to write more about the climate crisis and who want to cover this from a more holistic point of view but they are not really allowed to do that because of their editors or 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 whatever they, it can be um because right now we we desperately need the media there are very i don't think there is any other entity than the media who in such a short time frame that we have now can reach out to as many people as we need to reach out to as the media. Um, so they are, they are really in so many ways in the driver's seat when it comes to the climate crisis um, and taking action. Um, Do any of them ever say to you they don't think climate change is a problem? Have anyone said that to you? Um, I mean, among the media leaders that you've met, people who are in the position to influence yeah. what is published, what is broadcast? Maybe not specifically like that, but rather that, well, there are many other problems too, um, in that kind of way, instead of seeing the, the interconnected yeah. links, I mean, between these crises. Yeah, there's a, a little, there's a great section in the checklist towards the back of the book, which is very practical on actions you can take. And I have to say, another one mother, more media question, you reserve special criticism of TV producers who make uplifting programmes about how to go green with little gestures. <laughs> I suggest you start doing your job. Um, what have you noticed about TV coverage? What kinds of shows have you, just wind you up? Um, I mean... I... I mean, there, there, there were these kinds of shows were among the, the the tipping points that made me want to to school strike for the climate because I was just so annoyed at them because they have like celebrities who oh we we I'm going to reduce my own carbon footprint and they make game shows out of it and it, like I'm sure it, it can be entertaining for some but like this is an emergency and if we treat it like something a game show or then people will not really understand the urgency no, um, no, no it's, it's really well observed um, and I was thinking about one particular um, place you went in the book uh, you went to Minnesota 
which has very special association for Sweden. It's a very famous novel about um, Swedish immigrants who settled there in the 1800s. And then you went to see Toccata Ionize from South Dakota, who's a Native American. Can you tell me about um, that particular trip mm. and what it revealed to you about your yeah. work? Yeah, I was traveling around in North America um, a, few, a few years ago. Um, and then I, I wanted to, to go to this town, Lindström, or Lindström, um, that's very, it's a very central place to, to I mean, in Swedish literature, because we have a very famous um, book series called Utvandrarna, um, which is about Swedish immigrants settling in the United States and so on, because of poverty or whatnot. Um, and then, because I had read those books and I, I really liked them, and it was on the way, and then I, I saw like how how so many Swedish people had died there, and and specifically um, a graveyard, um, which was like it, it was a robust graveyard. It was like the graves were um, underholna, whatever that is in English. My, yeah, um, so like they were kind of proper stone markers. Yeah, yeah exactly. And then that same, like the, the next day, I went on to to the to Pine Ridge, which is an Indian reservation, um, and and I saw the the widespread poverty there, and and then I visited the 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 grave because it was one mass grave um, after where the, the victims of the incident or the massacre at Wounded Knee um, were buried. Um, and I just saw the difference between how these people had been treated and it was like a very, a very big eye-opener for me for like, because I didn't see, I hadn't seen the Swedish immigrants as colonizers before, but of course they were and Sweden was a colonial nation. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it opened my eyes to, to many of the social injustices that still are in the world and how, how these, how many of the people who have been oppressed are still living in oppression and, and widespread poverty, um, which is something that we often fail to connect with the climate crisis and different environmental, environmental crises, this environmental racism that is actually happening, that it's, it's the people who who have been historically exploited are also the ones right now suffering the most of the climate crisis. And there are so many great pieces of writing in the book by the likes of Naomi Klein about the theme that you bring up very much that climate justice is part of all justice. You can't mm. have one without yeah. solving all the others. Um, there are great lessons um, from COVID in, in, in some of the chapters of the book because I remember when the first lockdown happened in the UK, there was, despite the fear, a kind of optimism about how much we could change overnight, how mm -hmm. fast our cities became, had cleaner air and birdsong came back. Can I ask what you noticed were the hopes of the pandemic potentially coming out of it? I mean, one thing it did show was that we have never treated the climate crisis like an emergency. And also that once we actually decide to do to do treat something like an emergency we can um, 
even though, of course, we have to acknowledge that in many parts of the world, the response to the pandemic was not that great. Um, but it also showed how much we are dependent on on each other, and like the things that we missed the most was not weekend trips to Thailand or whatever. It was company. It was seeing our friends and loved ones that we missed the most. At least I did. Um, and going to, to school to work, these things that we do every day. That that really is the thing that we that we value the most. Not these materialistic things. Um, and but also, of course, it showed how how vulnerable we are as a society. That our that our global, very very complex economy and world can just more or less break down so quickly over something so small. Um, yeah, I think many people became quite humble yeah. uh, because of that. Um, you mentioned um, the economy, and a big theme in the book is that the whole system on which we calculate value and worth and GDP and all the rest of it is the reason why we have climate heating. Um, you say human humankind has not created this crisis. It was created by those in power to make unimaginable amounts of monies and to maintain a system that benefited them. You say we need to change the whole capitalist system. And I wonder if that isn't the real threat to some of the world leaders and the, the, the powerful figures you meet. They don't like. I mean, I think sometimes look back to 2008, which is such a long time ago, but it was that moment when we could have reset our systems mm. and people talked about it. Yeah. Um, of course, I don't really have any memories from that time. No, no, but I, I've, I've only heard. Um, but yeah, that we, the fact that we constantly, every time we have this window of, of, of opportunity, whether it is 2008 or whether it is during the pandemic, um, then it's every single time we fail. And I think that is a clear sign that what we are prioritizing is to maintain the status quo. The, the ones in power are so keen on maintaining this to benefit themselves that they're basically going to do everything to, to keep it there as long as they can get away with it. Um, so I think that is that is a major yeah. threat. And that the fact that we cannot, we are physically incapable of, of imagining another world. Um, it's like we are more capable of imagining the, the destruction of the world than to actually imagining another world where we prioritise different things. Yeah, well, I think when you say we, obviously there are millions of people who think yeah. like you that actually we can imagine a better world, but yeah. people who have benefited from the existing system can't, which made me think of Elon Musk, who <laughs> talked about how, I know, he... Um, <laughs> He's bought Twitter to save mankind, he says. Of course he has. Yeah, he thinks that buying Twitter, he can do important things with mankind by buying Twitter. And, um, he, you know, he spends his, a fortune on space rockets, thinking about that as a solution to Earth's troubles. Jeff Bezos, another figure who could do so much with his fortune. I wonder, have you ever met people like these and, and tried to talk to them about what they might do with their money instead? Maybe... I don't know, but I mean, I do think that there are many people who have met them and who have said these things that told them to maybe stay grounded rather than to travel in space, um, because there, there are more, there are more important things. 
um, that we should be focusing on right now, more important resources that I, we should invest the money in. Yeah, I know. Um, well, if you ever get a meeting, you could try yeah. and convince them again. Um, you know, going back to that issue about no climate justice without all justice, there's this strange situation we're in now. So, COP27, our new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, says he's too busy to go. Our King, King Charles, his spokespeople, say that he can't go because of government advice. COP27 has been held in Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh, which is a resort with all those issues of unsustainable tourism. The regime of Egypt has a terrible human rights record of violations. You've spoken about fascism in your speech, in your book. And I wonder how you feel about COP, you know, what, what it represents, with all, you know, that, that example. I mean, of course, this is not the only COP that is facing these, these kinds mm -hmm. of problems. All the COPs are facing different kinds of problems. But of course, it's very, it's very symbolic that it's held in like a tourist, I don't know, a tourist center, yeah. tourist paradise. Um, in a in a country that violates most many of the basic human rights, um, and that many world leaders are too busy to go there because they have their own problems, which is of course valid. But with that mindset, we're not going to be able to solve many of the problems that we face. Um, but yeah, I mean the cops um, have, I mean since the beginning, are not really meant to. To, to change the, the, the whole system. Uh, right now they are, it's, of course it's, as, as all of these things are, it's a way of trying to achieve change, like in a, in a slow way of to gradually pe bring people along and so on, which of course would have worked if, if we would have done it like 30 or 20 years ago, but we didn't. And now we are here mm -hmm. using the same methods um, that really got us into this crisis and, and it's not, not really working anymore. Um, as it is now, the cops are mainly being used as, as an opportunity to, for, for leaders and people in power to, to, to get attention when they say, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna change. And I mean, using many different kinds of greenwashing, um, Lie, lying and cheating and and so on. Um, so as it is now, the cops are not really going to lead to any any major changes, um, unless of course we use them as an opportunity to mobilise, which we must try to do, and make people realise what a what a scam this is, and realise that these these systems are failing us. Um, and we, we need to wake up and realize that. Um, you write in the book a lot about the myth of technological solutions, you know, the idea that we could seed our clouds and, you know, you could churn up deep water in the oceans to, you know, and I wonder if there are any technologies which have impressed you, which you think are a legitimate part of a solution? I mean, many. I mean, for example, carbon capture and storage is something that we must invest every possible resource in. Um, and there are many things like that. Um, the, the problem is not mainly the technologies themselves. The problem is 
when we rely completely on them and see them as a substitute to reducing emissions um, and really doing these major changes that we need to do, both in our system and in, 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 in many behaviours. Um, I mean, I, of course, you would sometimes wish that there was just a magic invention that would solve everything, but unfortunately mm. there isn't, and there is not going to be that in time, yeah. especially if, uh, in the time frame we have for, for the Paris Agreement, for example. So when it comes to that, we really need to change our, our perception of them. Yeah. Um, we've got so many more brilliant questions that have been submitted, so I'm going to start going into yeah. these in a bit more detail now. Sarah, um, Sarah Ria, or Sarah Ray, forgive me if I said it wrong, says, I work with children and young people at Mind in Berkshire, a mental health charity, as well as having two teenagers of my own. What advice can you give about supporting young people with regards to eco-anxiety? Our planet dying is such a frightening reality. How can I help young people not to be so overwhelmed that action becomes impossible? And you'll know there are many, many young people who can't sleep at night. Yeah, um, and of course I have, I've also been through that myself yes. because this, it's just such, such a, a massive responsibility to, to fall on a, on a, on a child to, to learn that all this is happening and no one is doing anything about it basically. Um, I mean, for me, the, the thing that helped was to, to take action and to feel like I was doing something. So even if it was on a small scale, it at least felt a bit better. So my advice would be to, while saying these things, um, give, give the children something concrete to do. Um, of course, they won't be able to, to organize a mass protest or like a strike you never or something. Know. I mean, I know somebody who's done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like it can be, it can be smaller things, and then you can go to bigger things. But just to have something concrete to do about it really makes makes the difference. That is the best medication against um, eco anxiety. Thank you so much. So here are some related questions. Uh, Charlotte asks. What's the best way that individuals can make a difference when we have limited funds and means? Become an activist. That is by far the most effective way to, to try to change things. Uh, educate yourself about the climate and, get, and spread that information to others. Start groups and discuss these things and spread awareness and also become, become an activist. Go out on the streets start to organize, join a local movement or, or, or such, because, yeah, we, ha we have to show that we are not going to let this, let this happen. We have to really constantly be there and constantly highlighting these issues and constantly putting pressure on, on the people in power. Thank you. Um, so Daisy Goddard, who's 12, says, I'm an eco-rep for my class at school. Do you have any advice on how to get my school community engaged with climate change? And I think there's been a couple of other questions where young people feel they're trying to organise mm, yeah. and they're not necessarily feeling they're getting a response. That is very, I mean, um, very brave of them to do. Um, and I, I become so inspired by all these young people who, who are trying. Um, and I know that many people are, are facing 
many hardships when it comes to this and are not being met uh, as they should um, and are being mistreated for this. So they are really inspiring. Um, I think that the most effective way is to is to get your friends involved and make it into a common activity, something that you do like every week or, for example, organize a strike or... Sorry, that's just... <laughs> just slipped out, that, did it? It's just, yeah. <laughs> or, 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 or join other local chapters. Um, yeah. I mean, it's difficult because I didn't have any friends to do that with, so I can imagine it's, it's easier to do it that way. But then, of course, everything differs. Yeah. from people. I mean, here's an interesting question. Nancy Leeming asks, how do we persuade ordinary people who work hard and have busy lives? Um, and I think, you know, it's the idea of people who are busy in their work and they might be worrying mm. about money and so on, to make the behaviour changes necessary to meet net zero. Um, and obviously the book explains individuals by themselves can't change yeah. things. But there's a whole issue about people who are just trying to get to work yeah. and they don't think they have time for this. Yeah, and of course, I, I understand that. Uh, the climate crisis in, in, in many ways is a, is a question of privilege. Those who have enough on the table um, to be able to, to think about, about the future, that is one aspect of it. And then we also have to remember that for countless of people all, all over the globe, the climate crisis is the crisis that they are facing right now. That is the reason to why they don't have enough to put on the table or they don't, might not even have a roof on their head because that is fueling other social inequalities already existing or, or straight on endangering their lives or livelihoods. Um, so we have to, to just tell that and, and tell people that unless we, we get engaged um, and try to change things, these things will look much, much more difficult in the future and things will only change for the worse. And then, of course, we can't rely on people making their, these behavioural individual changes by themselves. Um, that is why I think the most important thing that we can do is educating ourselves, because that everyone can do. Um, at least try to read up on things and listen to to people talk about the climate crisis and and also become an activist because that doesn't really re require so much for you. I mean, of course, being an activist, but you can be an activist in many different ways. Yeah. One of the things that's really struck me and it comes across in the book is although you list all the kinds of things people can do, you also point out you're not lecturing people and ordering people mm. to do stuff and that's yeah. a big misunderstanding about you isn't it people think you're telling them you're not allowed to fly yeah. you're not allowed to do this yeah um i've i've never told anyone that they have to stop flying apart from my parents but that's a different thing um <laughs> because i mean these these things have to come um like organically uh, people have to realize themselves that this is what we need to do um, and this is a way I can do, I can do things. Um, otherwise, it, it's not going to work. Um, this is an interesting question. Victoria asks, have you ever reflected on doing something differently in your, flight, in your fight for the climate crisis? Um, yeah, um, all the time. I'm an overthinker, so I overthink everything. Mm. So, but then I've also had to learn to just, 
I've done some things that I would have done differently, and I, I'm going to continue to do that. Uh, because Can you give an example of something that you do now yeah, that's different? Um, in the beginning, um, in, in speeches I made and things I said, I, I talked a lot to, about how it was us children who were going to be um, affected in, in the future and like they should think of their own children. And I think, of course, I, I had in mind that there were people already suffering from, from the climate crisis today, but I didn't really talk about that as much because, I mean, I was very new. I did not, yeah, so that's something I would have done differently. Um, but, but again, it's difficult you can't really, all you can do is to to affect your, your future actions. You can't really sit back and reflect on things that you did wrong and feel regret about No, that. no, absolutely. You've done so much already in such a little amount of time. Um, Dr. Ishani Rao asks, what do you do to relax and to avoid exhaustion and burnout? That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I would, I would like that advice myself. So, I mean, just I think one of the things that I find really just relaxing and just rinsing is to just break out into like dance, um, um, especially if, if it's with, with friends, um, and, and also just, just read about both things about the climate, but also things that are not about the climate. Um, what to get what some sort kind of stuff of, do you read that's just escape? I mean, novels, for instance, and yeah. Uh, unfortunately, not as much as I, as I would have liked to. A bit too much climate there too, <laughs> but yeah. I know. Fair enough. Also, I should say you've you 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 like your singing. I mean, you didn't sing, but when you were doing the sound check, you were you were doing something with a Christmas song. I saw there. Yeah. But I, I was doing some like some Swedish. Yeah. Something. Hey, Tom, take a glass and a lot of Some like. Um. And I should say, and again, I can't emphasize enough. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is... You yeah. knew they were going to do that on the... on the um, Continues in Swedish. Swedish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I just say, you, you write your speeches in English. Yeah. And, you know, you speak these two languages absolutely fluently. That's remarkable. No, I mean, it's, it's much easier to do it in one language and then switch because... If you do one language and then you have to translate, then you have to redo the whole thing because some things don't work in English, some things don't work in Swedish. And so yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, okay, here's a question. I don't know if you can answer this one. Danny Tolhurst asks, what do you believe has been your greatest achievement since you became involved in climate change campaigning? Um, I don't know. I think what the most important thing that we have done is to... To, to bring together so many people and so many activists from all over the world uh, who come from so many different backgrounds. Um, of course, it's, it's given many a platform and a place to, to express their concern and given them something to do, something concrete, um, 
which I think has been helpful to many. I mean, least, I mean, not least me, um, but also created a space where people. I mean, we, we where we meet new people and find new people who are fighting for the same thing. That's lovely. Right, Iris Hodgetts asks. My name's Iris, I'm autistic. I wonder if you could give me some tips and advice on how to navigate the world when you feel like an outsider. I care passionately about our environment and sometimes people laugh at me or make fun of me because I'm a vegetarian. I want to make a difference like you are. Can you help me? Yeah. Um, I mean, just do what you feel is right. And that's that's what I did, and that's what so many others in the climate movement did. I don't know. I mean, there are so many people in the climate movement who are on the autism spectrum. Um, there are so many of us who care about these things, uh, which is very, very heartening for 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 especially for me to see because back then when I when I was when I started caring about these things and when I just received my diagnosis, I thought that I, I was very alone in this and it, I also felt like an outsider. But then getting in contact with, with others who, who care for the same things and who, who think very similarly, I realized that I was not alone. So my advice would be find people who, who are like you. Um, for example, join a, a local uh, branch of, of a movement or something because there are many, many others who, who are like you and you, you just have to, have to find them. And that can also be difficult, but you will not regret it. No, absolutely not. Um. Um, a question from Oliver M. Warlock. We, I mentioned, you know, the COP conferences, and of course, you you came to COP twenty six in Glasgow last year. What are you going to attend COP twenty seven? And he also wonders if the Egyptian government's hostility towards activists might be part of that decision. Um, I am not going to COP twenty seven um, because of of many reasons, um, but I think it's. The, the space for civil society this year ex is extremely limited um, and restricted, as you say. Mm. Um, and then it's important to leave the space for those who actually need to be there, um, the mo most affected people in the most affected areas. Um, yeah, but, but, but yeah, as, as they pointed out, it will be very difficult for activists to make their voice heard. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, can I ask a bit about how you spend your time day to day in your life? I mean, you mentioned that you're still studying. You're also mm -hmm. trying to help us save the planet. And I just wonder, what's day to day life like? How do you find a balance between these um, big things? I don't know. Um, I, am, I wake up early. Um, and I go to bed very early because, I mean, this is way past my bedtime. <laughs> um, and I, I just try to do as much as I can within the, the hours when I'm awake. Um, I sit during the breaks in school and try to, to work. And 
um, and then I I just I'm just constantly on on the run, um, constantly on my bike going somewhere um, to a meeting or to a protest or to a strike, which is I mean, yeah. And I know you, you know, you have friends with you or your family with you. I, do they give you advice about whether they think, you know, you need to take a bit of a break or, you, yeah, you know, looking after yourself enough? Yeah, they are, um, I have so many people who are so sweet and they're like, calm the fuck down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And do you take that advice, Greta? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think it's it's difficult because I know we are many who are the same, who feel like whatever we do, we are not doing enough. Um, we constantly feel like there's so much that I'm not doing. Um, um, and then sometimes we have to zoom out and, and think that, well, we are, we are doing everything that we can and sometimes that is enough. Um, but it's, it's difficult when there's so much at stake and when there are so many who are working against us. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about those who are working against us. The book deals very powerfully with how hope has been weaponized by big corporate polluters. So I mentioned earlier, which you talk about in the book, BP created the idea of the personal carbon footprint, which is a bit like you know Facebook saying, as a parent, you could do much more to take care of your child's safety online. Um, as if a few personal changes can offset the damage. Can you tell us a bit about how we should deal with this scale of, of greenwashing? You compare it to the tobacco lobby in the past. Yeah, I mean, make them pay, hold them accountable. They have spent decades... They have spent decades knowingly funding... Um, denial, uh, distractions, and delaying. Um, and they have done that on purpose um, because that they know that we are going to have to change eventually. Um, I mean, whether they like it or not. Uh, so they're just trying to do everything they can to have just another year, just another month, just a little while longer so that we can make a bit more money mm. and they are never, ever satisfied. So call them out yeah and you want things like you know it is as simple as m making laws that outlaw things taxing much more you know you, there's very practical ideas aren't there yeah there are many <laughs> but i mean we have to while we do these things that we can do within our current system we have to realize that we need um a system-wide transformation um i mean representatives of, of the, I mean, the current best available science are now saying that clearly, stating that out, as I mentioned in my speech. And this is sort of science's way of, of telling us that we need to change everything uh, because right now our current system is on a collision course with, with the future of humanity and the future of our civilization as we know them. Yeah. Can I ask where we look for hope? I noticed that this week, you know, when the UN report came out saying that there was no credible pathway in place mm. for um, staying below 1.5 degrees C, John Kerry said that just because not enough has been done, it doesn't stop us acting now. And I, I wonder 
Oh, uh, yeah, well, I, do you disagree? <laughs> no, but live up to that, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I mean, he's implying there's hope still. Yeah. And that you have to have a hopeful attitude if you're going to get change, yeah. even as, as it gets more acute what needs doing. Yeah. Um, how, how do you... What do you see politicians being able to do? I mean, of course we believe that, that we can change things. We, we would not be activists if we did not believe that we could change things. Mm. Um, there are many, many things that politicians can do. I think the most important thing right now is to communicate that we are facing an emergency because, as, as they often say, um, they can't do things without the support of the people without the support of, of voters. Um, but I don't really understand how they expect that to come if they, every opportunity they get, they use to, to, tell thing, to tell people that things are happening, we are making progress, just look at what we have done and, and we have this under control. Then people will just fall back asleep. I don't really understand how they expect that support to come mm. when they are just completely killing any will to, to change things. Is there anywhere that you see hope, even if it's on a, a relatively small scale, where a government has genuinely tried to change something fundamental about their system? I mean, I mean, yeah, of course there are some some, some examples, um, but I, I I don't think that the main sources of hope now come from governments and people in power. I think that the main sources of hope come from people on grassroots level, people in civil society trying to organize, um, that is what I see as, as the main source of hope right now. And that's also where I have been getting the hope that I have. Um, because we, by having this global community of people who are constantly fighting every day for these things to happen, um, that makes you feel like there are people who are good in this world and there are people who want to, to do good and want to change things. We are not alone and if we are enough people, we can actually change things. I know given all that you do, it may be unfair to ask, but Spazundas wonders if you might consider going into politics in some way to hold elected office as part of trying to achieve what you want. If I ever do, tell me to stop. <laughs> Why? I don't think I would thrive in that environment, <laughs> so to speak. Um, politics right now is not really working to actually change things. Um, it's more like a way to maintain the status quo, if, if you understand what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, the real changes right now um, are, of course, needed in politics, but they are not really happening in politics. Um, they will only happen in politics if, as I've said so many times, if people are pushing for that to happen, if people are, are actively advocating for that and engaging in these movements, um, demanding these things. And I, don't th and I think achieving those changes um, is more likely going to happen from the outside. And then I see 
I think that we will have more impact as campaigners on the outside than politicians from the inside. Okay. There'll be people here, although I know it's past your bedtime and it's past <laughs> the bedtime of a lot of people who are um, at school, there'll be a lot of people who might be watching who have been on the Fridays for Future protests, who have really sat in their here too. Um, and I wonder what message you have for them when they're wondering what does the next year hold and how much time there is left? I mean, we have no idea what will happen now. I mean, just look at as the past few years. Um, things have happened that have ch changed more or less everything overnight and that have been impossible to predict. So we just have to stay in there and whatever happens, we have to promise ourselves that we will never give up um, and that we will make do with what we have. Um, things might not move in the right direction for us, but that is not an excuse um, to to despair. Um, despair is is a privilege um, because for us, especially if we live in this part of the world, um, having the option of doing something, just the fact that we have an option to take action means that we have a privilege. And if we have a privilege, we need to use it. Um, that's what I would say. One thing I just wanted to ask about was um, the profits from the book, because you have a plan for what happens to everything, yeah. don't you? I mean, I'm not going to earn any money from it, as the copyrights belong to the Greta Thunberg Foundation, so all the money will be donated to charity. And do you know what sort of plans the charity has? It's sort of various environmental causes. Yeah, causes in line with, with like our kind of activism. Yeah. Um, I must say, I'd like to think there's a time where you'll be back to talk about things and in a very different mood. Um, <laughs> that you know, we'll be talking about what you do after we've solved the climate emergency. I'd like to think that might be the yeah. case. Um, can I ask what your plans are? just in the immediate future, though, for the next few weeks and months. Obviously, the book is important, but... Now I'm going to go back and sleep. Okay. Um, that's, that's the plan for now. That's the plan for now. And, <laughs> and then I sort of take it one day at a time. I think you have the right to take things one day at a time. The book is wonderful. Talking to you has been a complete honour and a privilege. And Likewise. I know you inspire so many millions around the world. Long may it continue. Greta Thunberg, thank you. That was a fascinating, inspiring conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review or share this episode widely and help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Greta's other books, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Samira Ahmed. See you another time. Hold up. 